0: We're continuing our studies this morning in the book of Jude, and we'll be reading in just a moment, beginning in verse 20. So turn with me almost to the very end of the New Testament, to the book of Jude, and to verse 20. And while you're turning, let's pause and ask the Lord's help. Father, we do come again today and Seek your guidance. Seek the illumination of your Holy Spirit upon this word that he's inspired. That we might hear and understand and believe and act upon what we hear. So help us. Speak yourself to us. Now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We looked Wednesday evening uh, at this long and what I think can best be called righteous diatribe that flows from Jude's pen in verses 4 through 19. And we saw that faced with false teachers who were infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ and praying like wolves upon God's flock, that Jude was not afraid to call a spade a spade. He was not afraid to name sins He was not afraid to say that these wicked men who are committing them are going to hell. Jude's words in verses 4 through 19 are strong words. They're hard words because the men against whom he is forced to contend are evil, wicked men. They destroy God's flock by the false teaching that flows from their lips and by the ungodly example that flows From their lives. These are ungodly persons, verse 4, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These are the men, verse 12, who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted. These are the ones, verse 19, who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. Verses 4 through 19, I say to you, are hard words because the men whom he is describing are wicked men. But as we come this morning to verse 20, Jude shifts gears quite rapidly, does he not? He, he's just spent 16 verses describing the errors and the fate of these false teachers. But then in verse 20, his whole countenance changes and his tone of voice shifts, as it were, as he turns to the people of God and reminds them of how different they are. Should be. These are ungodly men, dead trees, arrogant flatterers, tearing down the faith of God's saints and denying the Lord Jesus himself. But you, beloved, Jude says in verse 20, you must not be like them. You must be different. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, At first glance, these four verses appear to be just a collection of bullet points as to how true Christians should live. Build up your faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait anxiously for the mercy of Jesus, and rescue people who are doubting and sinning. But it seems to me that one of those bullet points is actually central. One of them is the hub around which the others turn. Did you notice which one? I believe that if we think through it together, you will agree with me that the key phrase in these four verses, the hub around which the other clauses rotate, is that phrase in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. All the other instructions in verses 20 through 23 feed into this one primary command. The building and the praying and the waiting that he talks about. These are all subheadings under the main thing, which is keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, just notice the verbs in verses 20 through 21. The verb keep. You can see there is an imperative. It's a command. He's commanding us to do something. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But the other verbs in those two verses all end with ing, don't they? Which signifies that they modify the main verb. They explain how we should go about doing the main thing. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? By building, by praying. By waiting. Those ing verbs, those participles, are all modifiers. They are descriptors as to how we are to accomplish the command that's given with the main verb. And we understand how this works, even in our everyday speech, don't we? I might give you directions as follows. Going past Lebanon and winding your way through Columbus, drive to Cleveland, passing also by Mansfield. What's the main thing I'm telling you to do there? Drive to Cleveland, right? And how could you tell? Well, for one, you know Cleveland is after all those other cities, right? But even if you didn't, you would be able to tell by the way I use the verbs. One of them was a command, drive to Cleveland. The others had I-N-G at the end, and that tells you they're. Explanations of how you will get there, how to fulfill that main command. And that's the way it is in verses 20 and 21. The main thing, the command, is keep yourselves in the love of God. And then Jude gives us three specific ways in which we can do so. But Then what about verses 22 and 23? Those verbs, those verses, give us direct commands, don't they? Have mercy on some. Save others. On some have mercy with fear. Those are are commands. But I think the very nature of these commands probably indicates that they too are subsets of the primary command, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the main idea of this passage. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Note carefully that yourselves is plural. Jude doesn't just tell us here, keep yourself, you as an individual, keep yourself in the love of God. Take care of you. Now, you have to do that, but that's not all he says here. He says, keep yourselves, plural, in the love of God. In other words, the whole church is to be engaged in this watchfulness over our own souls. And it seems to me that verses 22 and 23 are a natural extension of that plural group focus. The whole church is to watch over our collective souls. The whole church is to be kept in the love of God. And how do we do that? Well, one way is that we help one another. We rescue people who seem to be slipping away, whether it's by means of doubt in verse 22 or by falling into sin in verse 23. And so I think that verses 22 and 23 fit under this same great umbrella. I think these two verses also give us a practical way to keep ourselves, plural, in the love of God. So there's one great... An overarching concern in jude's mind in this passage and it is very simple once again keep yourselves in the love of god and then there are going to be four subheadings four strategies for how we should do that and the picture that i have in mind and which i've given you before from this excellent little passage is that of a great warming fire the love of god is the fire the warmth in our souls and it must be kept burning that's what jude is saying i think if we can put it into a metaphor the love of god must be kept burning must be kept warm in our souls but how do you keep a fire burning you have to stoke it right and you have to consistently add fuel you don't build a fire in your fireplace at dinnertime on a cold winter's evening and expect it to still be burning by itself five hours later when you go to bed do you You have to watch it. You have to stoke it. You have to keep adding new logs or it will eventually peter out. And so it is with the love of God, Jude seems to be saying. You have to keep yourself in it. You have to keep yourselves as a group. We have to keep ourselves as a group in this love of God. We must keep this love of God lit. And to do that, we must continually add fuel. And the fuel is building yourselves up on your most holy faith Praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and rescuing others from falling away. Why do we do all these things? Not simply to check them off the list that we've done our spiritual duty. We do them because they fuel the flames of the love of God. Now, before we go any further, talking about fueling those flames, it's imperative that we ask... What is the love of God in which Jude wants us to keep ourselves? What does he mean by the love of God? What do you normally think of when you hear the phrase, the love of God? Probably, if you're like me, you hear the love of God and you think about God's love for us, right? And I think that's the right reflex reaction. God's love for us, as in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where Paul says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's probably what you and I normally think of when we hear the phrase the love of God. The love God has toward his people. But is that what Jude means here? When Jude urges us to keep ourselves in the love of God, is he talking about God's love for us? I don't see how he can be. Because we don't have to keep ourselves in God's love for us, do we? We don't have to do anything to maintain God's love for us or to earn God's love for us or to make ourselves lovable. God's love doesn't work that way, does it? So it seems to me that if Jude meant this verse that way, if he was saying that you have to build yourself up and pray and so on in order to somehow keep yourselves in a place where God will love you, then Jude would be turning the message of the gospel on its head. Because what does the gospel tell us about God's love for us? It doesn't tell us that God loves us because we've done something good to make ourselves lovable, does it? The gospel tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? God loved us while we were yet sinners. His love was not conditional upon our behavior. It was not grounded on anything that we have done. While we were yet sinners, He loved us. While we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. That's the good news, isn't it? God loved us so much because God is love. Not because we are lovable. And I submit to you that this is true 20 years into the Christian life as much as it was when we first believed. We don't have to keep ourselves in the love that God has for us. It's actually the other way around, isn't it? He is the one who keeps us by his love. Isn't that what Jude said back in verse 2, incidentally? He is writing to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Insofar as... God's love for us. He's the one who does the loving. He's the one who does the keeping. And we don't have to earn or keep his love. So we have to reckon with what Jude then means. When Jude urges us to keep ourselves in the love of God, it seems to me that he cannot mean that we have to behave in such a way as to ensure that God will keep loving us, that we have to keep ourselves in a place of goodness where we'll be candidates for God's love. So if that's not what he means, if God loved us while we were yet sinners, and we don't have to keep ourselves in a place where he'll continue to love us, what does Jude mean by the phrase, keep yourselves in the love of God? If he's not informing us that we must act in such a way as to maintain God's love for us, what is he telling us? Well, there's another way that the phrase the love of God can be read, isn't there? The love of God can and often does refer to God's love for us, but the phrase the love of God can also refer to our love for him. For instance, 1 John 5.3 says the following, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, if someone said to you, this is the love of God, you might expect that the next sentence would be that he sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners, right? And that's what Paul says. This is the love of God for us. But John uses that phrase in a different way. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That verse is clearly talking about our love toward God, right? The love of God is the love of God that's in our souls towards him. We keep his commandments and we show that we love him. And so I think perhaps that's what Jude has in mind when he urges us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Not that we have to maintain his love for us, but that as I'm sure you're well aware, we do have to work to keep up our own love for him, don't we? I think that's what Jude means. I think this fits the context of this passage perfectly. Jude is urging us in verse 21 to keep the flame of our devotion to God lit. And in the other clauses, he's giving practical ways that we must do so, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and so on. How easy is it for us to let the flames of our love for the Lord peter out? How readily we grow cold, how quickly we can fall into merely going through the motions. And in Jude's case, The danger was even all the more, given, remember, the dampening and the cheapening influence of these false teachers upon the people of God in Jude's day. Those men were like cold winds, evidently, snuffing out people's devotion to the Lord. And so Jude has to give them this warning. But you, beloved... You who know the Lord, give yourselves earnestly to keeping the flame lit. Throw logs on the fire. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep your devotion for Him burning brightly. Now, in our day and in our situation, it may not be false teachers who are threatening to snuff out our love for the Lord. For us, it may be even more subtle than that. For us, the cold winds may blow from far too much time in front of the computer screen or the television, the cold winds may blow from a fixation on worldly worries and cares of this life, or maybe an overfixation on our work, or on our hobbies or on our finances, or even on our health. These things can so distract us that we lose the love that we used to feel towards the Lord Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, we've become frustrated with God's difficult providences and we begin to lose heart and stop believing like we once did, and therefore stop loving like we once did. Or maybe we just, some of us maybe can be just spiritually lazy. Or maybe some of us have fallen into unrepentant sin, and it lays like a wet blanket right across the grate of our souls where there ought to be kindled a warm fire of love for Jesus. There are many reasons why the Lord Jesus might say to certain of his people, you have left your first love. And thus there are many people who need to hear Jude's admonition. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Some of us in this room need to hear that desperately. That's what I think Jude is on about in these four verses, verses 20 to 23. He's writing to a group of people whose love for God is being threatened, and he's urging them, don't let it Peter out. And I believe that message is apropos for us as well. And so I say to you urgently, keep yourselves in the love of God. Fan the flames of your love for the Lord. Throw coals onto the fire of your devotion. Do not give in to cold, formal, lifeless Christianity. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How so? How can you do that practically? Well, as I said, Jude gives us four pieces of instruction here, doesn't he? Four logs which we can throw onto the fire. And the first one is simply this. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Verse 20. Keep yourselves in love with the Lord by building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now again, we have to ask, what does Jude mean by most holy faith? What's he referring to there? Is he urging us to build up our own personal trust in the Lord, or is he urging us to build up the faith, to build up upon the faith that he talked about in verse 3, which was once for all handed down to the saints? Well, both are true, aren't they? We we must build under our own faith, right? We must come to trust the Lord more and more and more all the time, and I think that It is true that the more we personally trust the Lord and the wisdom of his plans for us and the faithfulness of his promises, the more we'll love him, which is the goal of this whole section. So we must build up our own personal faith in God. But I think that what Jude has primarily in mind in verse 20 is that most holy faith that he earlier called the faith, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, the Christian faith, this I think, is what Jude means by your most holy faith here in verse 20. He's referring to the set of truths, the collection of doctrines that we call Christianity, the most holy truths that make up the most holy faith. I know he calls it your most holy faith, which might lead us to believe that he is referring to our own personal relationship of trust in the Lord. But when he uses the words your most holy faith, I think he's simply saying that the faith is is your faith. This faith is your faith. This doctrine is your doctrine. This system of belief is your system of belief. And this faith, the faith, the standard of Christian truth that's been handed down by the apostles and the prophets, must be built upon, he says in verse 20. I think this is what he's talking about. The faith has been the chief concern of the entire letter, has it not? And I think Jude's still on that same wavelength here. Contend for the Christian faith, verse 3, and now verse 20, build yourselves up on it as well. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do you build yourself up on the Christian faith? Well, Jude is saying you already possess the faith... You've already laid hold of the faith. You've already believed the faith. It is your most holy faith, but now you must build up on it. You must erect a structure upon this good foundation that's been laid. And how do you build on the foundation of the Christian faith? Not with new materials, right? You build on the foundation of the Christian faith with the same materials that went into the foundation, the same materials that were once for all handed down to the saints. You build yourselves up on the foundation of the Christian faith, not by adding new ideas to the foundation, Allah, the false prophets. You build yourselves up on this foundation, actually by gaining an even more profound grasp of the old truths that were there all along. So I think what Jude simply means here is simply that Christians should grow and build and increase in their understanding of Christian truth. That we must become more and more conversant with the great doctrines of our most holy faith. That our theological understanding must grow higher and higher all the time like building blocks. And remember the context here in verses 20 through 21. Jude is encouraging us to build up our knowledge of Christian doctrine, not just for doctrine's sake, not just for head knowledge's sake. He's encouraging us to build up our knowledge of Christian doctrine, to know this most holy faith well enough, not only so that we might contend against the counterfeits in verse 3, but also, verse 21, so that we might keep throwing logs on the fire of our love for God, right? That's the logic of these verses. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Or to put it the other way around, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep your love for God burning brightly by growing in your knowledge of this grand and most holy faith. Learn doctrine so that you'll love God. That's what he's saying. Learn doctrine so that you'll love God. Now that might at first sound strange to some of us because we may have imbibed somewhere the idea that doctrine is actually dry and boring and sterile. Maybe it's necessary in the same way that all the different I-beams and different parts behind the walls are necessary in a building. But when I look at a beautiful building, it's not the I-beams that make me love the building, is it? And maybe that's some of our idea about theology and doctrine. We think, well, it's necessary, but, but it's not beautiful. Well, it can be dry doctrine, depending on how it's taught, but that's the fault of the teacher, not the doctrine. If you're bored this morning, it's my fault, not the fault of Jude and his truth. Let me give you an example of how learning doctrine hopefully helps you love God. Last week, In the sermon on Matthew 27, we we spent a good deal of time hashing through why it was that God put his son on the cross. Some of you remember that, I hope. Why did he do it? Well, because that one act of of sending his son to, to the judgment on our behalf satisfied and, in fact, integrated both the justice of God and the love of God. Do you remember that? We, we, we hashed that through, we, we talked it through, we thought it through for some time. We didn't, in other words, just say, how wonderful it is. Jesus died for sinners, let's all believe in Him and love the Lord. That's true, but that's not all we said. We spent a good time teasing out these two great attributes of God's character, His love and His justice, and showing how the cross satisfies and integrates them. We spent a good deal of time, in other words, establishing doctrine, doing theology, hashing through some of the great truths of our most holy faith. And I hope for many of you it wasn't boring. In fact, I dare say that maybe for a few of you, you were absolutely delighted to be doing theology with me Sunday morning. Not because it was me doing it, but because of the theology that we were uncovering. Doctrine warmed your heart, many of you. And I hope... It helped you love Jesus more. And that's what Jude is calling for here in verse 20. That we build ourselves up on our most holy faith. That we learn our theology. That we study doctrine. Because the better we understand this wonderful body of faith that's been handed down to us in the pages of the scriptures, the warmer will our hearts be for the God behind it. Jude is calling us to be students. To know the faith. To be each and every one of us competent theologians. Not professional theologians, but competent ones. People who know their Bibles and who know the basic shape of the Christian faith. Our children are learning to be those kinds of theologians, partly through their use of these little yellow catechism books that are available out in the foyer. And maybe that would be a good idea for some of us adults as well, to study and learn a Christian catechism which is designed to outline for us all the basic doctrines of the Christian faith and to help us memorize them and piece them together. You could use the children's one. There's none better, though, I think, than what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you might pick up a copy of that. You can get it for free online and just begin working your way slowly through it. It's doctrine of baptism. as Presbyterian and not Baptist, but I think you'll find it otherwise an exceptionally helpful tool for building yourselves up on your most holy faith, learning doctrine. So that's the first way to keep yourselves in the love of God, by throwing the logs of good theology onto the fires of your devotion. But then there's another strategy Jude mentions in verse 20, and that is, of course, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God by means of prayer. Now, that shouldn't come as any surprise to us, right? Put together a group of Sunday school children, and you ask them, what kinds of things should we be doing to help us love God more? And what are they going to say? Go to church, read your Bible, which is really the last point, and pray, right? Go to church, read your Bible, and pray. And we hear that and we think, oh, children are so simple. They're so simple because those are simple answers that are biblical answers, right? Every Christian knows these things. We'd be much better off if we prayed. Prayed more faithfully. Prayed more earnestly. Prayed with more faith. And yet Jude still has to remind his friends to do it. And we have to be reminded as well. One of the greatest privileges we have been given as followers of Jesus Christ is the privilege of prayer. It's a privilege. We don't have any right to come to God on our own, do we? But Christ has made a way for us. Christ has borne on his back the iniquities which have made a separation between us and our God and closed God's ears to our cries. Jesus took those sins on himself and he took them out of the way. He died for sins once for all so that he might bring us to God. And so when we ignore the privilege of prayer, we're actually spurning the great gift that was purchased for us with Christ's own blood. When we ignore the privilege of prayer, we're also hurting ourselves. Not only because no prayers mean no answered prayers, as James tells us, but also because prayer is one of the chief ways that we can fan our love for God into flame. I know it's often repeated and probably cliche, but isn't it communication that fosters love between two people? How did you fall in love with your wife, men? Women, how did you fall in love with your husband? Wasn't that you spent time together? You talked together. You shared dreams together. You laid your heart on the table. You you put together these ideas of what you wanted to do and be and become. And you used words, right? If you think about it, you probably fell in love largely with a person through their words. You didn't love the words per se, but the person came out to you in words, right? That's the way it is with God. As you listen to him speak in his word, and as you open your own mouth to him in prayer, a relationship is built, a kinship develops, like a little boy sitting on his daddy's knee and spilling out all of his day into his daddy's ear, 200 words per minute. Sometimes... We don't pray because we do not feel a love for God that draws us to pray. And I know how that feels, believe me. But Jude, I think, would say, pray anyway. Because it's not just our love for God that that brings us to the place of prayer, but sometimes it's our praying that keeps us in the love of God. And not just praying, but Jude says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Not just rote prayers, not just running through a prayer list and checking off the boxes, but prayer that's truly led by the Spirit. How do you do that? You simply sit on your bed like the Quakers of old until a Spirit strikes you? Maybe sometimes we do need to just sit like that. But you know, if you really want to pray according to the mind of the Spirit, it's probably not always that subjective. Because we have 66 books worth of material inspired by the Holy Spirit that tell us exactly what His mind is, don't we? Isn't that what Peter told us concerning the Holy Scriptures? Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1.21 Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke And they wrote. And so if you want to know the mind of the Holy Spirit, if you want to pray in the Holy Spirit, you'll do well simply to open the pages of this book and begin to pray your way through the sorts of things that the Holy Spirit moved these men to write. Indeed, a good practice for your own personal devotions would probably be to begin with the Bible. Try to diligently understand whatever portion of this most holy faith that's presenting itself to you that day, and then try to pray out the text, thinking about what... God would want you to see there and want you to understand there, lifting in prayer any items of application that arise out of the text. So maybe a given passage convicts you of sin. And so you can figure, the Holy Spirit probably wants me to pray today about that sin. Or maybe another passage reminds you of a friend of yours who needs Jesus. And... You've been reading about someone who met Jesus, and you begin to pray that your friend would meet Jesus, and that, more importantly, he would meet them. Praying in the Holy Spirit. And so on you could go. Not throwing out your own sort of regimented prayer list, but also trying to let the Spirit guide the direction of your prayers by means of His Word. And even when you are praying through your prayer list, which you, you should do, You'll never pray for people you told them you'd pray for if you probably don't have it on a list. When you do that, even then, ask the Lord to help you think of certain truths of Scripture that you can pray over Mrs. So-and-so who just had surgery. So maybe you don't just pray, Lord, bless her in a special way, but maybe you say something like, Lord, help her to remember today that underneath are the everlasting arms. Help her today to be anxious for nothing as she prays today, Lord, give her the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. So that's the second log to throw on the fire of your love for God, praying in the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, Jude urges his readers to keep themselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, which I think means waiting anxiously for the second coming. Waiting anxiously for that day when Jesus, in his mercy, will come and consummate his plans for us by bringing us to be always with the Lord. How can you fan the flames of your love for God? How can you in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation like the generation of false teachers in Jude's day or the spiritually dull hedonists that surround us every day, perhaps at work? How, when the winds seem to blow so cold, do you keep the flame of love for Christ lit by remembering and waiting anxiously for the day of his return? Read the New Testament, and I think you'll find that the early Christians, or at least the apostles who wrote to them, were much more eager for the second coming than it seems that many Christians are today. It was much more in the front of their minds than it was or than it is for us. I wonder why that is. Jonathan and I were talking about this just the other night, and maybe part of it is that we've sometimes been turned off by all the sensational talk about the end times that has gained popularity in the last hundred years. All the charts and all the graphs and the certainty that each foreign power who is ideologically different from our own government must somehow be a part of Gog and Magog and their leaders are quite possibly the Antichrist. Maybe some of us have heard enough of those wild speculations from modern day end times prophets that we've been turned off thinking about the second coming. At all. And that would be a mistake. But I think for most of us, the answer as to why we struggle to have a deep longing for the coming of Christ is probably closer to home than that. The new heavens and the new earth will be great and everything. You know, Jesus will be there. It will be wonderful. But things are are pretty good down here. I mean, the Shekinah glory can wait. I've got cable TV, I've got an iPhone. Everything's great. I mean, I know we don't actually talk like that, right? But I think that is the reason why we American Christians are often not nearly as eager as perhaps some of our brothers and sisters are in other places to see Jesus return. It's not that we don't want him to return. It's just that we're preoccupied. And life seems pretty good, and so we're not in any big rush for the end of time. And maybe for some of us it will take a little more suffering Before we truly begin waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. But I hope that we all do it. Because Jude says that this is one way to keep your devotion lit. This is one way to keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for his son from heaven. I had a friend when I was in seminary who was quite a bit older than me. Who told me that when he was a young man, he would sit in his window looking out at the night sky for Jesus to come on the clouds. And he was older then, and he realized that that's not exactly the manner in which we are to wait anxiously for the Lord's coming. But I'll never forget what I learned as he told me that that evening. Some people really believe Jesus is coming. Some people really want to see him coming. Some people long for his return and thirst for that day when we shall always be with the Lord and I ought to thirst more. And so are many of us waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. But while we wait, there is always difficulty in this life, isn't there? And the difficulty in God's providence often serves to make us more eager for the Lord's return. But the difficulties of this life also have to be addressed in this life, don't they? The call to watch and wait for the coming of the Lord is not a call just to bury our heads in the sand and let the world go to pot around us, is it? We must, while we wait for Jesus, work for Jesus. And particularly, Jude closes out this portion of the letter by reminding us of one of the ways in which we must do so, namely in verses 22 and 23, by ministering mercy to the doubting and the sinner. And have mercy on some who are doubting, And save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, given the fact of the false teachers that were infiltrating the church to which Jude was writing, we can understand why some people were doubting in verse 22, and we can understand why other people were dancing very near the fire, not the warming fire of love to God, but the singeing fire of his judgment against sin. That's what false teachers do, isn't it? They lead some people to doubt what they've always believed the Bible teaches. They lead some people to doubt the core doctrines of the faith, to doubt things like the triunity of God or the full deity of Christ or the full humanity of Christ or the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, and so on. False teachers cause many people to doubt. And evidently they were doing that in Jude's day, verse 22. And false teachers often cause many people to sin as well. Because if Bible doctrine is distorted, so often will be the lives of the people who espouse it. Who espouse the untruth and we see that hinted at in verse 23, don't we? False teachers have crept into this church and it's no surprise then that people are becoming polluted by the flesh. In fact, in this particular case, back in verse 4, the false teaching was directly related to ungodly behavior. Because at least part of the nature of the false teaching was, since God is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy, there really aren't any rules in the Christian life. God gives us freedom. He gives us license to do what comes naturally. Isn't that what Jude tells us was being taught in verse 4? Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God, our God, into licentiousness. Into license to sin. And so, into this milieu in which some people are doubting the faith and others are making a mockery of it by their ungodly behavior, Jude calls on his hearers to engage in rescue missions. Rescue missions. This is how you keep your flame lit and how we keep our collective flame lit, rescuing those who are falling. First of all, finding those who are doubting, Jude says. And have mercy on them. Now that may be a call not to be too harsh on some poor souls who are struggling with their faith because of the poisonous influence of false teachers. Jude may be saying, have mercy on them. Be patient with them. Don't discipline them too quickly because others are leading them astray. And that's a good word for us. When someone is teaching heresy, Jude is ruthless in his condemnation of it and of them. But when someone's faith has been rattled by heresy, he urges mercy. And in urging mercy, I think he probably envisions patience. But when he says, have mercy on some who are doubting, he may not mean just patience. He may not mean, in other words, that our mercy should only be of the passive kind that does not act in judgment. Mercy is not only passive, is it? Mercy is, is not only when we're patient with the strugglers and don't rush to judge them, but mercy is also when we act positively to get them the help they need. And Jude may have that in mind as well. Help those whose faith is shaken. Nurse them back to spiritual health. Reach out to them. This is an important ministry in our culture, maybe especially among young people whose faith is made to tremble by the pronouncements of their atheistic professors and teachers at school. Have mercy on them, Jude says. Patiently help them recover their faith. Now this will take some skill. This will take some knowledge of the scriptures, which is another incentive, as we were saying earlier, to become a competent theologian. But it must be done. Have mercy on some who are doubting. This is one of the great ways in which we can keep ourselves as a church family in the love of God. This is one of the great ways in which we can promote our corporate spiritual health as a congregation, to rescue those who are doubting. And the other way is by going on similar rescue missions for the sake of those who have fallen into sin. Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He's talking about sin here. In Jude's day, people were falling into bad behavior because of the influence of these false teachers. And Jude is saying, go and rescue them from that. But I tell you, false teachers aren't required in order for people to fall into sin, are they? People fall into sin, the sins of lust and theft and arrogance and drug abuse and all sorts of things, quite capably on their own, don't they? And all of us know that by our own personal weakness and experience. We don't need help to sin, though we often get it. And so as a church family, knowing how deep the sin nature really is and how easy it is for people to fall, we have to always be ready, like the firemen with their boots set right below the edge of their beds. We must always be ready to spring into action and snatch people out of the fire. We must always be prepared to confront where confronting is needed, to counsel where that's the need, to plead earnestly, whatever the situation may call for. And we have to be prepared sometimes to have to enter the burning building several times over before the task is complete and not give up. I wonder how many of us are willing to do this. There are folks in our own congregation this very day who are in the middle of a burning building, and they need someone, and in many cases they need several someones, to rush into the burning building and attempt to drag them out before it's too late. Because they've begun to fall into sin, they've begun to fall away from the Lord. I wonder if you've noticed any of them. I wonder if you're willing to put your boots on and go into the building and get them. They may not want you to come. But if God somehow uses you to pull them out of the fire, they'll thank you for it later. So will you go and will you help them? Now, Jude says, yes, you've got to be careful in engaging the sinner in the place of his sinfulness. You must be careful, Jude says, that you don't allow yourself to get caught up in the same sin. You must fear being polluted yourself. But that fear can't make you complacent. Sin destroys people, even people who today seem to be doing just fine. And so as a service to sinners and to the whole church whose love for God needs constantly to be kept alive, you and I must be willing to reach into the fire and to rescue those who have fallen in. What a great God we have. How good and how kind and how worthy of our adoration. How lovable He is, right? And yet how often we struggle to love Him. Let's fan into flame that love. Let us throw every log we know how on to the warm fire of our zeal, both for our own sakes and for the plural church that is seated all around us this morning. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh.